Hey, friends and family of the Everyday Theology Podcast. Thanks so much for your continued support and listening and being with us. Um, I just wanted to give you all a heads up that for the next few episodes, the sound quality may not be what we want it to be, what we like it to be, or really even up to the standard that we place on ourselves. Um, I think as we all are kind of reeling with the effects of the coronavirus and safer at home orders and and things that surrounds what we need to be doing in this time. Uh, we all recognize that you know things are going to be a little bit different. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you for continuing to listen to us and to support us. Uh, it really means the world to us. Um, but we do apologize that the sound may not be uh, what we want it to be. But bear with us, once this is all over, we are working towards making sure that we're going to have even better sound quality through this. Um, and, I, and I'll ask, because we have a lot of people who are finding us as of late, just organically, but I, w- I would ask that our listeners may take a moment to, on Apple Podcasts, rate and review us, help other people find uh, what we're doing in this time, and help other people engage with some of these conversations that we're having about how to how to best be Christians, how to best process our theology in our everyday world and our everyday life. Um, other ways to support us, too, uh, if, if you feel so inclined, we have a link in our show notes, in our bio, whether it's Spotify or um, Apple Podcast, to our Anchor account, which if you feel so inclined to donate, every little bit helps in helping us make sure that we can keep up the sound quality and the work that we're doing. Uh, thank you guys so much for for going on this journey with us, and we hope to keep producing great content for you here in the future. Welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or how to think, but discuss why people believe what they do and why it matters. On this journey, we will speak with artists, curators, influencers, and pastors. I'm Aaron Ross. And I'm Ben Gomez. Theology. Um, we have a very kind of special episode. Uh, we've got with us, I've got a colleague with me. It's our, his first time being on the podcast. It's Dr. Ken Archer. He's our one of our resident theologians here. And uh, with us today on the podcast, we have uh, the esteemed uh, Tom Ord, which I'm super excited to have on the podcast. So thank you so much for being with us today, both of you. It's great being here. Yeah, it's good to be chatting with you guys. For those who are listening, you know, the sound quality may not be as great as we like it, but we are in the in the midst of COVID-19 and physically distancing ourselves. So bear with us as we have uh, a little bit of sound quality issues, but hopefully we'll be back soon. Um, so again, thanks so much for being with us, uh, Tom. If you wouldn't mind letting our listeners know a little bit about you, a little bit uh, of your kind of theological journey and kind of diving us into our conversation today about what God can or cannot do and why that matters. Excellent. Yeah, I'll try to keep it brief. Uh, I grew up in a little town in eastern Washington state and was a part of the Church of the Nazarene. In fact, still today, I'm an ordained elder in that tradition. 
For those of uh, your guests who'd never heard of the Church of the Nazarene, it's a fairly small holiness denomination, has a Wesleyan kind of theological background, but emphasizes the ideas of sanctification and uh, transformed life. As part of that tradition, I was in a family that went to church all the time. And, uh, you know, I like to say I gave my heart to Jesus many, many, many times. Um, And I took evangelism really seriously as I got older, went into college. And I was one of those people who did a lot of door-to-door witnessing. I joined Campus Crusade for Christ. I, you know, bothered people on planes and all that sort of thing. Um, And then my senior year of college, I took a course in philosophy of religion. And I'd been asking, you know, questions for quite some time, but that course uh, introduced me for the first time to uh, agnostics, atheists, those from other religious traditions. And uh, the reasons I had for believing in a God didn't seem to have much, didn't seem to make much sense. And uh, I even got to the place where I didn't think I had grounds to believe there was a God at all. Yeah. I remember uh, coming to pick up my fiance, who's now my wife, her getting into the car and me turning to her and saying, I just don't believe in God anymore. Wow. Yeah. And for me, it wasn't, you know, like teenage rebellion or, you know, looking at the hypocrisy of some pastor or something like that. It was it was really an intellectual thing. Right. Um But I wasn't an atheist for that long. Um, I continued to work at these questions and eventually came to the place where I believed it was more plausible than not that there is a God. I'm I'm not certain of that. But um, really, two issues were kind of at the center of my return to faith. One was my search for ultimate meaning. I didn't think there could be ultimate meaning if there wasn't something like a God to ground that. Yeah. And uh, secondly, these deep intuitions I had about love, that I ought to be a loving person, that other people ought to love, and I couldn't make good sense out of that if there wasn't some source or foundation or spring or inspiration for love. Uh, So... You know, I went into ministry actually not long after that, and I had a pretty thin theology. I thought, you know, I believed there was a God. I thought Jesus was pretty cool, and that was about it. Uh, it's good to know that you didn't scare off your wife with that conversation. Yeah, yeah that's true love, isn't it? We were both uh, preparing for ministry. You know, we were both religion majors, and she stuck with me during that time and still today. So, yeah. Well, so I think – you know, a lot of the ways that I've engaged with some of your work, and I know others of us here have, has been in this kind of process that you've created, or this thought process and this theology that you have kind of explored that might actually say that because of God's great love for us, um, there are certain things that God can't do, which kind of flies in the face, I think, of, you know, some of those very kind of basic statements of God being all powerful and all knowing and all loving. Uh, Mm -hmm. And when we say that God can't do something, I know it can tends to make people kind of push back maybe sometimes in fear um, and other reasons. But what's, what do you mean by, you know, I know it's a really huge question, but what do you mean by when you say like your new book is God can't, what do you mean that God can't do something? Why can't he do that? And why is it actually good for us that he can't do something? Yeah, you know, uh, 
I've given you a little bit of my history, and I should say that I continue to be a person who always wants to ask the biggest questions of life and not just ask them, but also look for realistic or plausible answers. And polls tell us that the number one reason atheists say they can't believe in God is this question of evil. If God is loving, if God is powerful, then why is there pointless pain, yeah. genuine evil? And even though I don't have poll polling to support what I'm about to say, I suspect it's the number one question for those of us who do believe in God. <laughs> uh, so, uh, um, it's definitely a question I've had a lot of. Yeah. So as I've worked at this, I've tried to keep the issues of love at the center. You might say, you know, love is my North Star, my orienting concern. And because of that, I've been willing to really rethink a lot of views about God, a lot of understandings of God's attributes. And I've come to this position that you mentioned that I sometimes call the uncontrolling love position or essential kenosis that uh, sounds really strange to some people <laughs> when they first hear it, that God can't uh, prevent evil single-handedly. God can't control creatures or creation. Yeah. But uh, the God can't stuff, you know, it sounds odd at f to many people when they first hear it, but they are surprised to find there's biblical support for the idea that God can't do some things. And the majority of Christian theologians have said that there are certain things God can't do. So as I start to explain my view and say, you know, things like, well, most most Christian theologians think that God can't do what is illogical. Um, and then I'll say things like, you know, God can't deny himself. And, and pretty soon people begin to warm up to the possibility that we really do need to think about God's power differently than then, well, at least the way some of the songs that we sing in the churches I've been a part of uh, yeah. sound. Yeah. I remember as a kid, we sang a song, something like, uh, our God is so big and so mighty, there's nothing that he cannot do. <laughs> um, and yet in scripture, it says, God can't tell a lie. God can't be tempted. God can't, uh, you know, uh, deny himself, etc. So, um, that's part of what I've been trying to do. I'm kind of combining this ultimate impulse I have to understand God first and foremost through the lens of love and then rethink some of the uh, ways of thinking about God that have presented obstacles, not only to unbelievers, but to believers. So, Tom, I just want to uh, enter, not interrupt, but enter into the conversation. It's great having you with us. Um, I think one of the things that so many people appreciate about you is not only are you a sound academic theologian, a scholar, but you Thank also you. have been and continue to be very active in local ministry and the mm -hmm. church, that your passion for God's kingdom is evident. And also, I think what is helpful is that you're so personable and your story your personal story and the way you share it and the way you communicate um, makes you accessible. That is, you, you always generate a warm invitation. And I'm, I personally am grateful because oftentimes scholars and theologians, especially those that are working in behalf of the church, but more so also in the academy, they're sometimes mm -hmm. not approachable or 
are <laughs> people in the churches. They scratch their head and walk away saying, now, what was he talking about? Or she's saying anyways. And, uh, and there's a lot of truth to that, actually, among that more academic bent theologians. But I just want to say that because I know that there are many listeners out here. And I would like to encourage them that they would look to your blog, pick up your your more popular written work, God Can't. It's very accessible. You clearly articulate your positions in there. And if they want to dive into the deeper end, then they can refer more to some of your academic work. So um, welcome again. Thank you. Thank you for your personal story. And I'm sure it resonates with many listeners. I'm not... I'm convinced that most of us in our journey with the Lord often come to these moments of where uh, we're overwhelmed and we question, is there even a God or why do I actually believe this and how come this is happening? So the problem of evil, no doubt, is a major, major concern. One last bit of interesting tidbit, a fun fact, the Church of the Nazarene, my understanding, was called the Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene until 1919. Right. In 1919, right. in response to the emerging, developing, and by then there were a number of Pentecostal denominations in place, such as the Assemblies of God, Church of God, Church of God in Christ, um, it decided to drop Pentecostal. Uh, I, I just raise that to say that for those of us in the Pentecostal tradition that have a strong appreciation for Wesley and uh, Wesley as an important theologian that contributes to uh, Pentecostal spirituality, there is a lot of shared overlap between the Nazarene communities yeah. and the, the more holiness Pentecostal, the Wesleyan holiness Pentecostal tradition. So it's not uncommon, I think, uh, for Pentecostals and Wesleyans maybe to intersect and come to some important areas of shared concern. And so your work, though, coming back to that in, in your comments, has come out of this understanding of God as kind of ultimate reality, an understanding of love. And then how then do we understand a God who, who loves as a God who is acting in creation today? So my question is to just come back and maybe ask you, maybe ask you this simple question. When somebody asks you, what is God and who is God? How, how do you respond to that? Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's obviously a big question. Um, and my response sounds to some people very traditional, very uh, almost uh, popular but to other folks, they're a little bit, they think it sounds weird. So let me begin by saying, I actually think God is a personal being. Um, if you're in the academy, that's like a rare thing. <laughs> I mean, if I'm at American Academy of Religion and I stand up and say God is a personal being, I'll bet the majority of the people in the room look at me like, well, that's not something I would expect from you. But by personal, I mean not that God has a body like you and me or that, you know, God is my personal butler and just does whatever I want. I mean that God is relational in the sense of God is really directly present to me and to all of reality, influencing me and all of reality, but also being influenced by me. 
Sometimes people like to use the word relational to account for this. And this means that uh, what I do makes a real difference, not only in the world, but even makes a difference to God. And how I pray can actually have an effect on how God responds. So uh, I think God is omnipresent, you know. I affirm a lot of those very common views in Christianity. But what put, makes me different from most, uh, from many people at least, is that uh, I'm an open relational theist. That means that I think God experiences time like uh, we experience time moment by moment. I mean, I think God is everlasting. You and I aren't everlasting, but God experiences time moment by moment. God knows everything that's knowable, but that doesn't mean God can know with absolute certainty what the future is like. So that's what the open theism part is. And I think God is the strongest being in the entire universe. I even sometimes use the word almighty to talk about God's power. But God can be almighty without being capable of controlling anyone or anything. So I rethink what me, many people call God's sovereignty or God's omnipotence under or from the perspective from a God of love. I think love, God's love is inherently uncontrolling. Yeah. Okay. I, I, think, I think there's definitely, uh, that, that's such a loaded, there's a lot of loaded uh, kind of statements there. And I think we, yeah. could, we could have a podcast on each one of them, whether it's kind of like, open theism or uh, kind of the open and relational. But I actually think, especially in light of what's happening today with something more in terms of kind of the natural evil that we're kind of seeing in the world with coronavirus and COVID-19 and kind of sickness and disease and everything. Mm -hmm. I want to maybe like kind of hit on this idea that God can't stop evil. But the way that you said it was, I think, important. God can't stop evil on his own. Right. And, and what do you really mean by that? And I, you know, I know that someone's position who might be hearing this for the first time, this can kind of be like off putting and a little bit uh, scary Mm -hmm. because of that kind of picture that I think we've sometimes created of God, but what do you mean by that? And in what way, what way does God relate to evil, especially something like this natural evil we're dealing with? Yeah. So if we can just kind of contextualize it in a way that why, is God not able to stop the coronavirus by God's self? That right, is, right. why can't God just say enough? It stops. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe to get at that, I should uh, kind of talk a little bit about some of the other ways people think about God in the midst of this pandemic. You know, I, I hear I'm probably like, you're probably like me in that. You know, you see social media posts, people saying God is causing this pandemic because God's angry at America or angry at the world. Or I'm not in that camp that says God is doing this by trying to teach us a lesson or, you know, punish us or whatever. But more people I, I meet will not say God is causing the coronavirus to inflict havoc and kill people, et cetera. But they're saying God is allowing it. Mm, And that allowing sounds like God has the kind of power to prevent it single-handedly. Yeah. But for some mysterious reason, God is just letting it happen. God is permitting it. And I'm even rejecting that view because that sounds to me like God could prevent all this, the problems we're having, but God isn't. Right. And I, I just don't think that's loving. 
So that notion of God allowing, God permitting is often connected to people's kind of prayers. Uh, Your will be done, Lord. Yes. And a sense of timing. Um, That is, well, God is allowing this, as you said, to teach us something. Or some people would say it's just not according to his plan. And sometimes that notion of allowing, permitting uh, lends way to this sense of mystery, of unknowing. Yes. You're challenging yes. that. I am. I'm not saying that I, you know, understand everything there is to know about God. There's always <laughs> right. going to be some measure of mystery in things. But right. I, I feel like that mystery card gets played when people are not willing to rethink some fundamental views of God's power. And, uh, you know, I remember, you know, as a kid, we were talking earlier about my, my Church of the Nazarene being the Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene early on. I actually grew up in a congregation that really emphasized the gifts of the Spirit, including speaking in tongues. And we used to have lots of altar calls and healing services. And I remember in, in high school, when we prayed for people, we would often add this little phrase at the end, if it's your will, yep. you know, yeah. God, heal her for her leukemia if it's your will. And it, it came to strike me as kind of a cover your butt phrase that, you know, you kind of tacked on yeah. just in case the person wasn't healed. You could say, well, you know, it must not have been God's will. And I got really tired of that because I, I wanted to believe God wanted to heal everyone all right. the time. And so like, it just didn't seem to be, at least for me personally, intellectually honest. So, um, I understand why people want to say God permits and God's allow, and maybe it's not God's will that she's healed or this coronavirus is gone. But I, I like to, I like to tell little stories to illustrate the problem with the allow and permit view. And, and here's here's a little story. Suppose my three daughters are out playing in the creek behind my house some Saturday afternoon in the summer. And suppose I look up and my oldest daughter has got my youngest daughter's head underwater and is trying to drown her. She's so mad at her. Mm. She's trying to kill her. And suppose I'm close enough, I could intervene and stop it. But I say, you know, I'm not going to play with my oldest daughter's free will here. I'm just going to allow this. I'm not causing this death, but I'll just permit it. Yeah. My wife would not think I'm a loving dad if I just permitted my kids to kill each other. Right. And yet most people I know think that God has the kind of power to prevent the coronavirus single-handedly, but for some reason is just allowing it. And it just doesn't strike me as a painting a picture of a loving God. Yeah. So so what what would be why beyond just the love thing, right? Well, God can't because God loves or the, what you would call the uncontrolling love of God. So when you say that God can't, do you really mean that there is no way in which like God's hands are tied or God chooses not to, again, that's kind of that allow question a little bit, um, Mm -hmm. chooses chooses to allow humanity to have its own free will and therefore he won't take it away. Yeah. My view is a middle way between two other views. Uh, 
One view I'll call voluntary divine self-limitation. It's fairly common amongst theologians. It says that God could single-handedly prevent some evil, but God has either made a decision at the beginning of the universe or makes decisions currently to be self-limited voluntarily. I reject, that's the God-allow view. On the other side of my view is the, the idea that God is somehow constrained by external forces. Maybe those forces are metaphysical laws or the laws of nature. Maybe they're demons or Satan or something outside of God is constraining God. Like God's arms are tied behind his back saying, oh, man, I really like to help out, you know, Aaron here, but these external forces are preventing me. I'm rejecting that view. My view said it's God's very nature to be uncontrolling and God can't contradict God's own nature. So it's not external, but it's also not a choice on God's part. God's very nature is uncontrolling love and therefore God can't control anyone or anything that God loves. And I think God loves everyone and everything. Right. So I think that when you talked about the voluntary self limitation, that seems mm-hmm. to be something that would be pretty common kind of maybe in more Wesleyan Arminian circles to a certain degree. Yeah. Yep. And I know that certain theologians will say, uh, and even I have uh, made this statement that God, only God can limit God's self. And if God limits God's self, um, God does so in consistency with God's own character. So mm-hmm. if one wants to modify the God being all-knowing, oftentimes the argument is God knows everything in the past, everything in the present, but God does not know the future because either God has limited God's self, God can't know that because God says, no, I'm not going, or that um, God limits God's self in the sense of saying there is no future yet to know because it has not yet come into existence, per se. Right. Um So you're saying that voluntary self-limitation, which I think is probably a very popular among many kind of Wesleyan, Pentecostal, Arminian groups. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think that's very common. Yeah. Um, The other one that God is being limited by some external other force is really God, one being among other beings. And there just so happens to be certain kind of beings out there that can do something to God to hinder God. You you definitely want to reject that one. Right. Right. So we don't have God. It's just another super, there's other beings out there, other things out there that somehow have a hand over God or restrict God. Your view is just trying to say, as you understand love, that God is consistently being God all the time. And this is what uncontrolling love looks like. So yep, in, that's right. in relationship to that, uh, I just have a question. It, how is it that God creates? And then how is this God continuing to be God all the time? How does that then relate to what we often use as extraordinary moment or miracle? It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I hope I'm not saying too much there. I was just trying to iterate. So most of the listeners can say, yeah, I'm probably in the. There, there is another model, I think, out there that, that more of the deterministic model 
God has sure. predetermined everything. That is happening, and therefore it's kind of a mystery, but God will be glorified. God's plan will be accomplished. And uh, in the end, uh, those who are part of his chosen will maybe better understand what was going on. That is not even, that's not part of the, any of the models you just shared. But No, no, that's more of the, we sometimes call that a Calvinist model. And right. yeah, I'm not... I'm rejecting one, that. That's the one we see on uh, on social media. Our friend says, "Well, you know, God's in control. This according right. to God's will." You know, somebody. I think in your most recent blog, you have that quote. Well, if you're going to die, you're going to die. So don't worry about the coronavirus. You know, it's your time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? yep. So uh, I just wanted to put that out there because there's probably uh, people that might be listening that that would be their go-to perspective mm-hmm. uh, gives mm-hmm. a deep sense of assurance for them I mean what you're what you're sharing can be very unsettling for some in the sense well this God you're talking about I agree that God is loving and yes this analogy of I think yeah why is it God not intervening and so you either go to one of these other ways to kind of offer explanation and your models your understanding of God uh, and I, I think it's important that people understand that you're drawing this also strongly from Scripture um, and uh, other places, is that God's uncontrolling love is such that even as God creates, I would suggest that this creation that comes into being um, is not is, is going to have uh, a range of freedom. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think a lot of folks feel okay with humans having freedom and God not, at least most of the time, they'll say God doesn't take away that freedom. I want to say God never does. But uh, I'm also willing to talk about agency at less complex levels. And even something like the coronavirus having uh, uh, some kind of power or integrity of existence that even God can't control smaller things like a virus. So I'm in one way, you might say my view is taking the Wesleyan view of prevenient grace, that God acts first and empowers and provides capacities to creation. It's taking that idea and applying it to all of existence from the most complex creatures like you and me to the least complex. So, so what would you say to someone who I think is might, might struggle through this idea in terms of saying, well, aren't you taking something away from God? Like, aren't you making God less than who God is supposed to be? But, you know, I don't think you would say that at all. So what would be the response to saying, like, this is lessening God, this is making God less of God than God is? Yeah, I think it's really natural for people to hear my view and their first reaction to be, well, that can't be God because I believe God can do absolutely anything. You know, this is a a mini God or a a wimpy God or something like that. Right. And I don't think this is a wimpy God, but I can understand in comparison to the way people have been thinking about God, this will strike them as unusual. Let me make a bold claim. I don't think there's a single passage in the entire Bible that says explicitly that God controlled in the sense that God was the only actor to bring about some result. I say that 
thinking about the beginning of the Bible and God's creation, hardening of Pharaoh's heart, every miracle I know, the resurrection of Jesus, even the eschatological fulfillment. I don't think there's a single passage that explicitly says God alone brought this about and there was no creaturely contribution. Now, there are plenty of passages that only mention God acting, and what we've done, not only sort of laity, but a lot of professional theologians as well, we've assumed God could have done it single-handedly. And so when we only see or read God mentioned, we think, well, this must be an instance of that. But that doesn't explicit, the Bible doesn't explicitly say this occurred. And uh, I think it's important to uh, compare these passages to passages like, for instance, in the book of Acts, in which miracles are uh, done and God is not mentioned at all. And Peter, you know, walks through the streets and people touch the the rags that he has touched and they're healed. There's no mention of God acting there. And yet most people I know think that God must have been part of that miracle, even though God's not mentioned. Well, why can't we turn the tables and say that when only God is mentioned, maybe there was some creaturely contribution there as well? I mean, to use a a popular phrase, a couple months ago, I guess it was last month, last month, the, uh, the Kansas City Star has a headline that says, Patrick Mahomes wins the Super Bowl. Well, if you might if you don't know football you might think that Patrick Mahomes was the only player for the Kansas City Chiefs right, on the field right but in reality it was a whole team but that headline Patrick Mahomes wins the Super Bowl can be true and yet there be lots of other actors and factors necessary for the win the same can be said about phrases in scripture which says god does x We don't have to interpret that as God alone bringing it about, God single-handedly doing it. We can imagine that it's also creaturely factors and actors involved. So it's it's not saying that when people are touching the rags from Peter, uh, what you're not saying is it's Peter. What you're saying is it's God enacting with and through Peter and Peter enacting with and through God. In the same way that when God is doing something, there are people who are involved. And and I think this is a really important, maybe embodied theology and thinking about Jesus and miracles is that it's never simply just someone all of a sudden is healed without any word spoken, without any laying on of hands, without any uh, prayer. There's always very embodied reality to healing that is more than just like miraculous instantaneous healing with no one involved. Right. I think this is, I mean, this view I think can help a lot of your listeners who've been a part of Pentecostal circles, who've seen healings, but also seen people not healed. Yeah. So what this view can say, the uncontrolling love of God can say that God really does heal but always in conjunction or in tandem with creaturely agents and forces and factors. So that means, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I've prayed for a lot of people to be healed and only a small percentage have actually been healed. Yeah. So I can say, look, those healings that did occur, those are genuine, they're legit, God acted, but there were also creaturely factors and actors that worked in tandem with God. 
And then all the times in which people are not healed that I've prayed for, I don't have to say, well, God must have some mysterious plan or God is punishing them or, you know, God has abandoned them off on other business. I can say, you know what? God was working to heal, wanted to heal, but there were factors and actors that were not conducive to the healing God wanted to do. And so this accounts for what I call the problem of uh, selective miracles, that in this way of thinking, God always acts to heal, always wants to heal, but sometimes the conditions of creation are not conducive to that healing, or there's not the kind of cooperation necessary for healing. So if I could just jump in right there, if God Great. is always being God, acting and, and doing, then when there are not um, healings or when evil continues to persist and sometimes there's waves of it. You said that, that God does need our help. God needs help from other actors, other agents and factors. So practically speaking, then what can we do to help God? What is God asking us to do? Because if my yes. son or daughter or wife or somebody is sick, I am praying. I am asking. So yes. if it's not God that is in and of God's self able to bring this about, but God is calling and working with and calling others to help, what do they need to do to make this a better place? Yeah. It, you know, the answer is obviously going to depend on the situation and the illness involved, but it's going to include uh, standard kinds of means like, you know, standard kind of medical procedures and medicines. It's going to involve uh, more non-traditional kinds of things. It's going to involve our treating our bodies well and uh, trying to get enough sleep. During the coronavirus, it's going to involve social distancing. It's going to involve words of encouragement and words of, uh, um, of um, um, oh, forgot the word. I'm, I'm not coming up with the word I'm trying to get with encouragement. But anyway, it's going to involve a variety of factors depending on what the uh, situation is and the problem. It's, I should also say, can I quickly insert one thing yeah, here? Yeah. Because um, I, I want to be sure not to blame the victims who are not healed. Right. So like, yeah, I'm very much against the idea of standing up and saying, well, you know, you weren't healed because you didn't have enough faith. You didn't pray hard enough. I think there are lots and lots of situations in which people had plenty of faith. They played, they prayed plenty hard enough and yet their bodies were not cooperative or the conditions were not conducive for the healing God is trying to do. It's, it's um, to give maybe a, a crude analogy of the way that I think we can often um, oversimplify it is, you know, I'm thinking about someone who yep. has lung cancer and they have lung cancer from smoking and they're praying to be healed from their lung cancer, but they keep smoking. Where right. what we're not saying is that is that is always the effect. Like that's always the case no. where someone right. maybe has stopped smoking and they've been, you know, trying to run and eating healthy and taking medicine and praying and doing all of that and having faith that God will heal them. And yet within what you're trying to say is within kind of our world, you know, there are uh, 
Oh, I forgot the exact word that you said it, but like, just because they are physically being cooperative doesn't mean that their lungs are being cooperative to the healing that God exactly. wants to do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe your smoking example is one that people do consciously. Maybe I'll come up with one, that, uh, an example that people are unconscious. Let's say someone is really going through some major health problems and they don't realize it, but their water is being contaminated by some, you know, chemical from a local, let's say coal mine or something or something. Maybe just the water in their areas is really bad and they don't realize it. They continue to have problems, uh, not of their own doing, but yeah. that's because their body is facing forces, actors, agents that uh, are making them sick. Yeah, which which really kind of maybe I think opens up the view for some people who I think I think it's easy, especially as kind of individualists to think that like we can we can do we can control every aspect of it. And yeah. every aspect is prayer, a little bit of work, and maybe taking medicine. But there are sometimes external factors that we don't have control over and that also has its freedom given to it by God. Right. Yeah. And even if it's not full-blown freedom, there's some kind of power. Like I was thinking right now is a perfect example of the coronavirus. Like if you think it's just totally up to you to keep healthy, you don't realize that you're living in an interrelated universe and the actions of other people have a real effect upon you. But um, so, yeah, it's not just individualistic in that kind of way. What we do really does matter, but we're also affected by others. But when it comes to the virus, you know, I don't think a virus has free will. So I don't think viruses are conscious that they're like saying, oh, I don't want to cooperate with God here. But I do think they have a kind of agency a kind of power. And um, I do think that that can run contrary to what God wants. And, and what some I, people will, oh, go ahead. What I like, what, what I like about what you're saying, but also try and help maybe process it a little bit. Cause when we bring up like words like agency and power, I can, I can imagine someone listening and going, well, are you saying that the virus has power over God and that's why God can't? Um, because that's the, that's the typical paradigm, right? Of the way that yeah. we think about power. But what you're arguing for is no, we have to kind of renegotiate from the beginning what power almost is. Yes, and in my view, God necessarily gives power, love, agency, existence to others. If it's a complex creature like Aaron, creatures like Aaron and Ken, they're going to have genuine free will. I think it's limited, but they're still genuine. You're, you're going to have consciousness, etc. cetera. Uh, smaller things of reality, I don't think are conscious and have genuine free will, but God gives them their very existence. Yeah. So the question is, you know, does God have the power, the ability to stop giving the existence to the coronavirus. Right. That's that's the key question. And uh, to answer it, I think we need to th to rethink some views about God, but also rethink some views about the world. And one of the views we need to rethink about the world is that uh, less than 1% of viruses in the world are pathogens. In other words, less than 1% are doing negative work. 
viruses make it possible for all kinds of uh, genetic diversity and all kinds of things we think are really positive about the world. Only a very, very small percentage are actually negative in the way that the coronavirus is negative. So one might think, well, okay, why doesn't God just, you know, affirm the existence of 99% of the viruses? And when one goes bad, you know, just whack it, <laughs> it's right. just annihilate it. Right. <laughs> um, and here I like to point out that, you know, maybe there's a different way to think about love. Maybe uh, love isn't in the business of annihilating, but it's in the business of trying to heal, trying to call to transformation, to use our powers and agencies for good instead of evil. Um, and I'll sometimes compare it to humans. You know, um, when the three of us sin, does God annihilate us or does God call us back to transformation, right. to righteousness, yeah. to holiness? Maybe it's the case that we should take that principle and apply it to all of reality and not just humans, that God's in the business of trying to redeem all of creation, not just, you know, the humans. And if you have that way of thinking, then you have an appreciation for the intrinsic value of all creation from the most complex to the least complex. Right. And and it, it's like what you're saying there, if I kind of make that to another analogy, just because if I, if I cause irreparable damage to someone else it doesn't have to be physical maybe it's psychological um i am not you know i am not struck struck down by god because i have caused damage um but given the opportunity and freedom to to work with god in order to create redemption um and and that's kind of a, a you know if, if we take that to its lower level, it's the same with maybe, and not exactly the same, but kind of an analogy for coronavirus, whereas God is, is working on redemption through this process, not so much annihilation. Yes, I think God even wants to redeem viruses. I mean, I take the Apostle Paul really straightforwardly when he says God wants to redeem all of creation, yeah. wants to be reconciled to all of creation. And this is a very loving view of God, right? Like that God isn't picking and choosing which parts of creation God wants to love or That's how right, he yeah. loves each parts of creation, but rather God loves all of creation equally. Yes. Yeah. I think God loves all creation. Now, love here doesn't mean like what every bit of creation is doing. I think God loves the rapist, but hates the rape. Right. God loves the liar, but hates the lie, etc. And really, I think this way of thinking can help us understand relate to other people in our world instead of saying, you know, they're good people and bad people and we should eliminate all the bad people. Maybe we should say there's some people who are more healed and other people who need more healing. Um, right. And then think about that in terms of how we're going to act in our world. Well, Tom, it's been a huge pleasure to have this conversation. I know that there's going to be probably a lot of questions that maybe come up from this <laughs> podcast. Yeah. And, and so I hope if any of our listeners have those questions, they kind of write in and ask those questions and I'll kind of put a link where they can do that. Cause uh, I would like to have this, you know, maybe a longer conversation on this to maybe help process 
for some people, some of those other kind of terms that we brought up at the beginning of the podcast, not just in terms of evil, but also thinking about knowledge and some of those other areas that we, uh, yes. that, that you're trying to rethink in light of God and why that's important for us. So uh, again, I appreciate having a conversation. I appreciate having you here and having Ken here. Uh, with me as well. Before we go, is there any way that people can connect with you that they can kind of keep up with your work or if they're interested in our conversation today that they can find out more? Yeah, I I think if folks are interested in the ideas I've been proposing, the the book God Can't is probably the best place to jump in. There's some other books that are more academic, but that one is, I think, pretty accessible. You can go to my website, which is my full name, Thomas J J A Y Ord O O R D dot com, um, and I'm on lots of social media stuff. So if people want to send questions, I'm I'm happy to answer. Perfect. Well, again, thank you so much for being with us. It was a real pleasure and treat for yes. me. I know for Ken as well. Indeed. Thank you, Tom. And it was amazing having Ken with me. Um, so thanks so much, and hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. See you guys. Oh, 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 oh,